0: Professor Dave Snowden is one of the world's leading experts in the science of common sense, otherwise known as the science of complexity. He's a former IBM executive, founder, and chief scientific officer of the Kenevan Company. He's pioneered tools for developing strategy and good leadership using anthropology and neuroscience. And when the European Union, the US government or major corporations want to figure out how to identify a problem and then solve it, they turn to Dave. He's in New Zealand right now sharing ideas about navigating complexity and uncertainty and teaching Kiwis how to use the tools he's developed. And Professor Dave Snowden joins me now from Wellington. Hi. It's
1: always a pleasure to be in New Zealand.
0: Yeah, great to chat to you. I know how much you love a wander uh, to get your brain working. Have you managed to do that while you are here?
1: Yeah, I got out to Red Rocks, came over the top on... A walk back to Wellington. That's always a favourite. So yeah, it's been good.
0: Yeah, cool. And we'll um we'll get into the, the structure stuff sh- shortly. But o- on walking, um, what do you enjoy about it, and and why do you recommend it for the human brain? Uh,
1: it's it's a form of meditation. I mean, I, I walked all the way round and through Wales to celebrate my 60th birthday, and you know, um, I'm currently on on another round. Um, we're about to start the Compercela. I think, I think if you walk, particularly if you do endurance walking, which is what I do for, you know, eight, nine hours, you just get into a sort of meditative stance and problems sort themselves out for you.
0: <laughs> um, people's ears might have picked up with the word kinevin. Uh, it's a Welsh word, means sense of place. We have a Maori word, Tūranga Waiwai, which you may have come across while you're here. Um, yeah. Why did you choose to use that Welsh word as the name of your company and of the um, framework you developed?
1: Well, one of the things Wales has in common with New Zealand is we actually have an indigenous language, which is an official and a main language, which is actually not official. So there's a commonality there. Um, I think it, it translates as habitat into English, but nobody in Wales would use it for anything that trivial. What it means is the place of your multiple belongings. So it's this sense you're wrapped up in a series of journeys over time, which you're only partially aware of. And complexity science is all about inherent uncertainty but underlying patterns. So it's a really good name for a complexity framework.
0: And place comes into your thinking around problem solving, understanding what kind of problem you're dealing with actually depends on where you're standing. I guess for some people that will sound straightforward, but it's still ignored on a regular basis by decision makers.
1: Yeah, there is actually a marrow dispute about what the equivalent of Kinevin is at the moment. So that's that's quite interesting. I'm waiting for some results. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, it's a flow concept in Wales, it's not a standing concept. Right. But it's this concept, place is important. And we know that the physicality of your environment actually is part of your extended cognitive capability. Human beings use their body, they use their social structures, they use narrative structures, they use place as part of extended consciousness. What is complexity science? And known is a science of inherent uncertainty. So it deals with what we'll call unknowable unknowns. And at the simplest level, in in a complex system, everything is entangled with everything else. The only thing you can know with absolute uncertainty is anything you do will have unintended consequences, and that has issues for government morality. Mm-hmm. Um, so if everything is entangled with everything else, you have to manage the entanglement management, the interactions, and what you're trying to do is to see patterns emerging that you can reinforce. One of the things I always say to people is everybody knows how to manage complexity because it's how we manage our children. (laughs) And we don't give our children KPIs aligned with the mission statement (laughs) for our family and the purpose. And we don't do that. We manage emergence. That's what we do. We're good at it.
0: Is it true you did a TED talk on how to run a child's birthday party? (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that, 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 that was the TED talk. It, it illustrates complexity, all right, because it says you wouldn't manage a children's party with highly structured processes, with clear objectives, with clear targets. The way you manage a children's party is you kind of like create some boundary conditions, you throw in some catalysts. If good things happen, you reinforce them. If bad things happen, you disrupt them. And so the phrase at the end of it is you manage the emergence of beneficial coherence within attractors, within boundaries. Um, and that's actually what I've been working with on the Ministry of Environment here this week, is how do you manage the ecology, not by sort of massive interventions, but but lots and lots of small distributed interventions so the system starts to move in the right direction.
0: Environment sounds like a, quite a good metaphor for what you're talking about. Um, it it yeah. seems like you're talking about treating organisations, whether it's the organisation of a children's party or your organisation at work, as a, a kind of an ever change, like more of a garden than a machine.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a good metaphor. I mean, the last 20 or 30 years with systems thinking, we've had this engineering metaphor has dominated the way we see the organisation. We're seeing it much more as a complex ecology. And for example, some of the work we're doing now is on distributed decision making into small combinations of roles and people um, so that you can get decisions made real time in the face of threat or uncertainty or opportunity rather than have massive bureaucracy. And, you know, in a garden, you need to maintain a wildflower area. If you don't, you, don't lose, you lose genetic diversity. So the garden's a really good metaphor. That, that
0: decision-making you're talking about, is, is that sort of replacing top-down decision-making with kind of bottom-up or maybe even,
1: even yeah, it's, from the edges? It's, it's linked to the way the human brain makes decisions is we constantly hallucinate and we check the hallucinations against reality. <laughs> and we only really think about problems if we receive anomalies. So the work we're doing, for example, is to get very young people with very old people, with somebody from a local council, that's a trio, a transgenerational pair, and authorizing them to actually spend money on on very small local projects with transparency. And then if you do that at scale, and we've done that in South Wales, we've done it in Sweden, we've done it in elsewhere, then senior management pay attention to anomalies, not day-to-day routine, and that actually is a much more effective approach.
0: Can you explain a bit more about that and maybe some of the experiments that you've yeah, okay. done over there?
1: So and I'll give an example. So um, we know that, you know, you don't see racism in kids until they hit puberty. And then they start to settle down based on the prejudices of their tribe. So by early 20s, female, late 20s, male, you, you're locked into your tribal prejudices in that sense. And we think it's earlier for women because they were productive sooner than men, right, in hunter-gatherer communities. Late 50s, early 60s, if you survive that long, your brain becomes plastic. And if you look at it in the academic life, people in the humanities tend to innovate when they're older in the sciences when they're younger. So there's a thing we call the grandparent syndrome in that grandparents are old, wise, cynical and well networked, whereas young people are young, idealistic and naive. So we put the two together. They come up with novel, sustainable community interventions and then local government make that happen so one of the projects we did in south wales for example um, we ended up with a low-cost production of a bike park funded by the fire service you know runs into the old slag keeps in the forest for the kids but it turned out the car park where they built it was where the drug dealers melt met and the local community knew that so they did an intervention to stop them so we ended up with a whole Lots of small micro initiatives like that rather than a grand government plan to change things over the next three years. It must blow the minds of the bureaucrats. <laughs> Actually the good ones love it. Because what it means is, you know, ninety percent of the day-to-day crap goes away and they can focus on anomalies. And it's the anomalies where you've got opportunity and threat. And I think that's important. And if you know when we get the next plague, because COVID was the first of several, I mean I'm 70 next year, I'll see at least one or two more. The ability to actually have a network of citizens which can feed back in real time and respond to the small issues for you is one of the critical things to build resilience into society.
0: That idea that it leaves the bureaucrats to deal with anomalies, could you just plain language that for us a wee bit? What do you mean
1: by that? Uh, So it's linked with the way the brain responds to anomalies. So if you start to get a pattern of decision making and you start to see, let's take fraud, for example. We're doing a lot of work on fraud and sexual abuse. What you actually want is to detect that very early on so you can do something. You don't want to wait for people to formally report it, by which time it's too late. So that's an example of anomaly. right? And then you can use techniques to deal with it. But also you may get something new. And classic experiments on this. um, If you take radiologists and ask them to look for anomalies in a pile of X-rays. And on the final X-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule in plain sight. 83% Eighty-three percent of radiologists will not see it, even though they're I scan it. Seventy percent to do come to leave. They were wrong when they talk with the eighty-three percent. So what you want to do as a government bureaucrat is find the seventeen percent before they talk with the eighty-three <laughs> percent.
0: I can't believe this is the second interview in a row in which we've talked about invisible gorillas. Um, we're talking to oh, you've
1: done the, the the six kids with the basketball. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. That was yesterday. The Simons. Yeah. Um, Uh, By the way, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Professor Dave Snowden, who is an expert on the science of complexity. He's in New Zealand at the moment. I'm just keeping up and hope you're um, enjoying this as well. What is the difference between complex and complicated?
1: Okay, so a complicated system has a very high level of constraints, so you can predict what will happen. Um, a complex system is highly entangled, so you can't predict the future. And there's a good driving example. I mean, New Zealand and in the UK, we drive on the left. In Germany, they drive on the right. And so that creates an order, structured predictability. If you ever try and drive in Italy, south of um, Naples, nobody follows the traffic rules. I made a major mistake <laughs> once. I slowed down for a red light, and there was a mass pilot behind me. <laughs> because the informal rule is you go faster. Yeah? And driving the Sorrento Coast, it was like a nightmare. People are passing me on both sides. And then a friend of mine in Italy said, you're a complexity expert, don't you recognise flocking behaviour? And it suddenly Mm -hmm. worked itself out. You follow the next car, match speed, avoid collision, and then you have stress-free driving, right? And that's a complex system. So, you know, but it it relies on interdependence and common understanding to actually create a sustainable pattern.
0: How does the movie Frozen 2 help explain what you're talking about
1: <laughs> oh, i like that one um yeah, yeah we, people can now say professor snowden said we had to watch it rather than oh, i've got a grandchild so i've got it it's a great complexity <laughs> movie the nice thing about disney movies if the first one's successful the second one gets script writers who also write for adults oh yeah so in the middle of frozen 2 the real heroine of the frozen series who's the young sister without the magic Mm. sings this beautiful song subsequently made famous by a Ukrainian refugee which is all I can do is do the next right thing Mm -hmm. now that's what in complexity theory Stu Kaufman called the adjacent possible I can and the key thing in complexity is you map where you are at the moment and where you can go next and you go there and look again you don't try and have very highly specific objectives um, because that just produces perverse incentives so that's the frozen two strategy right and the perverse incentives are actually critical. If you look at health services worldwide, we try and define outcomes in what is a complex set of interactions, and then people focus on achieving the outcomes rather than improving patient care. Yeah, that will ring a bell for a lot of people. Um uh, to illustrate that we don't work ethnographic work. Nurses generally have to break the rules, the safety rules, three times a day <laughs> to provide empathetic care to patients. Yeah, wow. That's a perverse system. Yeah. What's the better system? Oh, you use vector targets. So a vector target measures speed and direction for a use of energy. So it says, where am I? Where should I go next? Not where would with, where with somebody, an idealist, would like me to be? Yeah. So in complexity, you start journeys with a sense of direction, which means you're open to novelty. When you deal with ordered systems, you can define in advance what you want. Yeah. And you can achieve it. But in complexity, that's actually quite dangerous because it will lead to misdirected results. I mean, I give an example. I, I fell in on Treven in the Rory, you know, a few years ago, um, made the mistake of going out without breakfast, end up having to have eight, eight stitches in hospital. Um, and I walked down a thousand feet and realized, you know, there was blood everywhere. So I took a picture and then came up with this wonderful tweet, Red Dawn on Treven, which you can find on the Internet. <laughs> Got to the hospital because I walked into the hospital rather than being brought in by an ambulance. I had to wait Uh because there were people with lesser injuries on the triage system and everybody had to be seen within X hours unless it was an emergency admission. So the rule system didn't allow them to do the right thing for the patient.
0: Respectfully, you have a giant brain, Dave, and, and you know this stuff. You've spent your life learning this stuff. It must be quite hard to share these lessons um, right throughout an organisation mm-hmm. so that a nurse, uh, a tired nurse on a night shift, knows the right thing to do rather than just having a rule that she can follow that will um, be useful most of the time.
1: Yeah, we have a, a process on that which is more like this, fewer like that, or the nurse combines with two other people and they reach a decision together. The stre- It's interesting, the stress chemicals in the brain, are generally not present if we make decisions in combinations of Hmm. roles rather than as individuals so there's there's things that we can do on that but New Zealand is if I mean Maori get this stuff straight away I've just been talking yeah it's kind of like it's about narrative it's about understanding it's about flow it's about development so it's not that difficult um and actually young children get it fast as well um the trouble is adults have trained themselves into this sort of mechanical view of the organization And it's a matter of just breaking that. Then it's quite simple.
0: Hmm. Simple,
1: but still revolutionary, I have to say. Yeah, well, I I remember in the 1980s where everybody said systems thinking was a weird academic idea and one year later it dominated the world. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, these things go in waves. You just have to be patient.
0: Okay. Can we have a quick word on data? Um, Mm -hmm. When people visit a new city, they want to go to the top site on TripAdvisor. Maybe the second, if the first one is too far away, anything beyond that, why waste your time? Is data and and measuring everything sort of replacing the hard work of thinking and exploring and experiencing?
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that computers think inductively, so they make inferences, whereas human beings think abductively. It's actually the role of art in human evolution has been allowed us to be hugely innovative because it takes us away from the material. And the danger with AI and computer and information systems is not that they will exceed us in intelligence, but we'll meet them halfway. <laughs> it's actually quite interesting. Quite a few elite schools in the States are now banning computers because they know that if you learn without computers, you will have major advantage in the future. So it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm going on to Australia to talk to simulation conference. And I'm pointing out the whole point about AI is what the, the training data set. So TripAdvisor is trained on the data training data sets are the people who randomly visit it. It's not objective. Yeah? Um, with narrative discovery, we can actually find those quaint little restaurants that nobody knows about, which is what you really want.
0: Yeah, that actually makes me feel better about AI. It's been a pretty tough few months, and just about everything you read is um, pretty yeah. gloomy. You know, you know, Even just on a personal level, I, you know, my concern with AI is that anything my brain can do will one day be able to be done by a machine, but you seem to be suggesting yeah. that there's something innate about human thinking that maybe can't yeah. be re- replicated or am I being too helpful? hopeful there?
1: No, you're not. Because human chemicals, the body, the environment play a large part in human decision making. But it's not that we shouldn't worry. There's a Neil Stevenson who I've worked with with Singapore government, brilliant science fiction writer. And I think his latest book, you know, the initial hypothesis is only the rich can afford to have truth curated. Everybody else is sold to an advertiser, and that's what we're happening with the internet. Yeah, and that—that's actually a warning. That that novel, the first three chapters, everybody should read. Not sure about the rest, because it's a warning about what's happening. You are being sold to. If we talk about advertising intelligence, not artificial intelligence. You're being sold to advertisers by your, by your interactions.
0: Here's something provocative. You say that good leaders don't make a lot of decisions. Why is that? Mm.
1: Oh, I mean, I got promoted to C-level. The higher you get promoted in organization, the fewer real decisions you get to (laughs) make. And the more you only meet angrier and angrier customers. All right. Um, The essence of good leadership is to actually link and connect people. So decisions are made for you and you only make decisions when there's no alternative and, then, this is in the You field guide, you make decisions to keep options open for other people. And actually, New Zealand did that very well during COVID. I mean, your, your prime minister locked New Zealand down illegally, but it meant New Zealand had more options than the UK did and um, Sweden and elsewhere. They waited till they had no alternative. So leadership is more about coordination and linking people and then you know, distributing energy, distributing resources, because you can't make all the decisions yourself. You just don't know enough.
0: I spoke to Don Norman recently, the design thinking guru. Um, He was worried Mm. that we're focusing too much on STEM education, science, technology, engineering, maths.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, what's your view? Oh, completely utterly. I mean, art and music come before language in human evolution. And then it ascends to the heights of Caravaggio and Wagner. So that reveals my prejudices, all right? Because in evolutionary terms, it allows us to make novel connections. And so the danger is, in, you know, if you don't actually, if people don't appreciate art, if they don't understand music, if they're not taught that in school, we're making them more like computers and less like human beings. And that's the danger with the overfocus on STEM education. The scary thing, if you look at Australia and England at the moment, if you want to do the humanities, you've got to be rich. If you want to do engineering, you can get a, a low cost degree. And that's going back to 19th century elitism. Only the rich will be taught how to govern.
0: Makes reading books sound pretty important. Yep, absolutely vital. OK, last question. You are known all over the globe for your deep thinking and your analytical skills.
1: Who is going to win the Rugby World Cup? Oh, Wales, without any oh,
0: come on! <laughs> <laughs> we, we would
1: have beaten New Zealand if it hadn't been for that ridiculous red card for <laughs> years ago. Right? Don't get me on to this. We? <laughs> yep. we got an easy passage all the way through. I'm really hoping England don't make it out to the... So I'm going to be supporting Samoa. <laughs> and that gets us into the semi-final after the semi-final everything can happen and yeah, you know, the other side of the pool you're all going to beat each other up and lose your best players i think the good lord was on our side in this pool <laughs> actually that was a pretty
0: good game wales new zealand and was it 2003 at the world cup
1: i was there i reckon you could I have had us that day thought, well, that was when shane williams came through in sydney i still remember that
0: yeah, yeah. uh good stuff well What a pleasure to meet you, and thank you for your time here in New Zealand. We'll catch up again, I'm sure, and thanks for the
1: um, intelligence and optimism today. Real pleasure. Thanks. Good talking with you.